This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the Redbox podcast i'm matt sure leaving you the best of my times radio show don't forget you can listen live on your dab radio on your smart speaker just say play times radio or download the times radio app so you can take us with you everywhere you're going but here on the podcast we like to bring you the best bits of the show i mean i say best bits nikki noodles on the apple podcast review uh, thingy uh, says the pod's lost some of its shine bit snide at times you're only journos matt's a good interviewer though when he wants to be so, fingers crossed, Nikki Noodles will be happy with today's episode because I've been doing some of that interviewing again. Uh, we've got another exit interview where I sit down with some MPs who are standing down at the next election to ask, why are you leaving us and what could we have done better? A cracking one today, Sir Ben Bradshaw, if you don't mind, former Labour Cabinet Minister, delivers his verdict on Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn and his advice that he's giving to Keir Starmer's team on how to prepare to run a big government department. That's coming up in just a moment. First, as ever, we kick off with our columnists, and today we've got a very special pairing. The Columnists on Times Radio. The new independent on Sunday. Are you getting the full story? Yes, today it's an independent on Sunday reunion. Uh, no Libby Purvis and Ray Sylvester. But a decade ago, I was working at the Independent on Sunday, uh, Britain's least read national newspaper, uh, where I used to work with Jane Merrick as political editor. Hello, Jane. Hello. And uh, welcome back. It's like Friends Reunited. Uh, we've also got, what were you, Matthew? Were you the diary editor, Matthew Bell? I, I was a sort of on and off gossip columnist, as I remember. Yeah. But mainly gossiping in the office about colleagues, I seem to remember. Rather <laughs> exactly. Anything that was happening. Well, this is very exciting. Uh, I'm glad to have you both back. Um, let's start with public sector pay. Millions of public sector workers face having pay rises of 6% blocked by the government uh, because they're worried about inflation. Uh, there's uh, suggestions that the pay review bodies could recommend teachers get 6.5%, while police officers, prison officers and junior doctors would all get 6% or more. But the government's worried it will cost an extra £5 billion. Uh, this morning, the Health Minister, Helen Watley, is refusing to commit to abiding by the... Um, uh, recommendations of the review bodies. And the problem for the government, Jane, is that they've previously used these bodies as the defence for not putting them up higher. Yes, exactly. This is how extraordinary this would be if this is going to happen, is that throughout the winter, 
during all those public sector strikes, um, negotiations, Rishi Sunak kept on saying week in, week out, we have to respect what the independent public sector pay review body has said, and they're independent, and we have to respect it, and we can't overrule it. So it would be a complete sort of volt fast on that position. Um, but, you know, it, the, the difference is, I guess, now is that inflation is looking, you know, stickier than it was in the winter. And um, he has to come up with a sort of a, an explanation as to what, you know, has to, has to halve inflation by the end of the year. How is he going to do this? He's sort of making, I think, slightly a scapegoat out of public sector workers, given that private sector pay is probably fueling inflation as well. So it would be an extraordinary move for him to do it and um, very controversial among the unions. Um, what, what do you think of this, uh, Matthew? I mean, it's just a further round of arguments about how Rishi Sunak's not managing economic matters perfectly. Well, it, it does seem politically like an own goal, because if he doesn't accept the recommendations, then what he'll find is doctors going on strike, policemen going on strike, all in the run-up to a general election, um, which will play into the hands of Labour. Mind you, I noticed that Labour have not promised uh, that they would increase <laughs> pay sector uh, pay either, public sector pay either. So it, it seems to be, uh, clearly the advice is that, you know, the, the, the British economy is not bring in enough revenue to be able to afford to pay for these uh, pay rises. But I do think it's, it's, if you step back from the politics, it's a mistake because I think anyone can agree that the people we want to properly pay are junior doctors and it's policemen. These, these are people who, policemen, every day they go out on the streets and they are taking a personal risk just to do their jobs. And the same with doctors. These are people who are um, putting in overtime and it's a, it's a vocation, it's a career uh, that they are um, they're, they're sacrificing their time for us for our benefit they're not asking for a favor it's just a reasonable living wage so I think these are two instances where the government should be looking to to find the, the necessary funding well we'll see um, if they do uh, when they uh, they find it it's a, you've got the slight sense of ministers on the round this morning they didn't really know what to say about it so they're just not going to say anything uh, don't want to preempt things um, now I want to talk about uh, Prince William. He's launched an ambitious, what he calls ambitious, five-year programme to prove that it's possible to end homelessness in Britain. It's called Homewood. Uh, his Royal Foundation is uh, going to work with six locations across the UK to show how, if everyone works together, then they can prevent homelessness. Um, and I just wondered, uh, Matthew, whether... Well, first of all, I suppose it, laudable uh, aim, you know, everyone thinks we should um, do something about homelessness. Should... But he's now the direct heir to the throne, and he's now getting involved in essentially with questions of local authority housing allocations and budgets and government policy. And I just wondered whether it was a bit too small p political. Well, the, the great thing about being Prince of Wales is that you can uh, voice opinions, as we saw with, with the now king. Um, you can afford to take risks. And, and actually, if you think about what Prince William is saying today, this is a very low risk statement. You know, nobody doesn't want to see uh, homelessness resolved. So in a way, he's chosen something, an issue that almost everyone will agree needs to be tackled. Um, and he's also pointed out that his mother took him to a homeless uh, uh, shelter when he was 11. So that also will ameliorate or, or soften any uh, political edges that this statement has. But yeah, of course, we're right. It's always dangerous when the royal family 
uh, stick their head above the parapet on a on a potentially uh, a political issue. But I think he's he's been pretty canny in choosing this one. Uh, uh, mind you, not that I, I think he actually will be able to resolve the problem because I, I do think homelessness is one of those problems that is almost impossible to resolve. Uh, especially in five years, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. What do you think, Jane? Yeah, I think it's fine for royals to get involved in, as Matthew says, sort of, you know, policies that nobody is going to argue against. You don't go into an election saying that you want more homeless people. And as the Princess of Wales is doing, you know, you want early years um, childhood worse for young children. I think it's interesting, actually, that these, these two sort of huge issues, the Princess of Wales with early years and the Prince of Wales with homelessness, they're two policies that have probably been completely neglected by mainstream political parties. I mean, the Conservatives um, cut funding for Sure Start centres. You know, nobody really talks about early years, Sure Start, and it sort of it hasn't been one of the top um, discussed subjects. No one really talks about education either, which is extraordinary. Um, and the same with homelessness. You know, we don't get policies from Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer on homelessness. So I think it's, it's good. Um, I think it's obviously... it's. <laughs> There is a point, I think, about accountability. You know, you can't... The good thing about politicians is that you can vote them out at the next election. We can't vote out the Prince of Wales if he fails on something. So where is this, you know, this money, it's not all public funding, it's some, you know, it's charitable and it's private sector. But how that money is going to be spent, where is the accountability? Will there be accountability for this? In five years, is someone going to say, well, hang on, your project hasn't worked and you've let down people and, you know... There has to be some sort of scrutiny, and I'm sure because there is a charitable foundation that it has, um, you know, has obligations to 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 answer. So that that's fine. But I think it does kind of concern me that there should be, you know, he can't just sort of say this as his, you know, his major project after becoming Prince of Wales, and then they're not being, you know, the, as if that subject is sudden, suddenly tackled. Yeah. There has to be some sort of, um, you know, accountability down the line that, you know. Uh, is what he's doing actually has it made a difference? And I suppose the, 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 you're, it's interesting the point you make that because it, it's not part of the political discussion right now. It feels sort of non-partisan. But were Keir Starmer to suddenly announce a pledge to end homelessness by I don't know twenty thirty, then suddenly you do get into questions where Keir Starmer has been asked whether or not he agrees with Prince William's plan. Prince William's asked if he gives an interview, is Keir Starmer doing enough? And then suddenly that is a very political thing. Yeah, and it it does it it does show the kind of the dangers of. I mean, personally, I think the royal family. You know, we fund them. They do need to kind of work for their money. They do need to be do, doing something that is for the public good. They can't just be sort of you know holding, uh, having sort of uh, garden parties and so on. They do have to be doing something active. So, but what are you know what are they doing? Is this is this just a kind of a big fanfare for one day and a few interviews around it? And he you know he looks mm. good. Is there actually what what is the detail? But I think you're right. It does expose the dangers of um, the royal family getting involved in that in the detail of politics. And I think the Prince of Wales probably, sorry, the, the King, but the former Prince of Wales, as was, did stray too far. He did interfere, you know, writing letters to cabinet ministers. And I think it's interesting actually that the the now Prince of Wales has sort of met already met Michael Gove and Keir Starmer to discuss this. And that does make me feel slightly uneasy that sort of he is as you know, he's almost sort of co-opting them into his plan. And do they get a choice to say, well, you know, we think you should be spending money in you know yeah, in yeah, this yeah. direction. 
That's interesting. We'll see. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's weird. A lot of it depends on whether or not the government... Ta- it, 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 the more successful he is, and politicians take notice of it, the more politically controversial it might become. Now, mm. uh, while I've both uh, got you both here, and I know there's a story that was um, uh, dear to your heart, Matthew, not least because it probably takes me back slightly to our time at the Independent on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> do your hangovers really get worse with age? Of course they do. <laughs> but, but the good thing about getting older is you know how to avoid a hangover. Um, I remember the, the most useful lesson I learned at school from my chemistry teacher, Major Smith, was um, the maxim, beer then wine fine, wine then beer queer. And there is some kind of chemical uh, order in which you have your drinks that means you won't get a hangover the next day. So you've got to start with things like vodka and beer and move on to wine, but never have them after you've had wine, because uh, that, that, that's how you get the hangover. Uh, is this is this ring true for you, Jane? Well, I haven't had a hangover for um, twelve years because when I had my daughter, I just thought I I couldn't cope with a hangover with a with a baby or a or a toddler, especially with a toddler waking up at six a.m. and running around. You just you just can't do it. And I I know that Matthew's recently become a father, so I don't know whether he's changed that. But yeah, I mean, I just it's it's I I don't I don't drink so much that I um get hangovers anymore but before I I guess before I had my daughter I was so yeah 20s 30s they definitely got worse absolutely I think Um, I think I've had a hangover last for longer than 12 years (laughs) (laughs) I mean my my main memory mainly at the independent on Sunday was Saturday mornings treating myself (laughs) to a fry-up every week thinking well I'm working on a Saturday this is very unusual I always treat myself to a fry-up and just sitting in a in a in a sort of pit of despair is that fair Jane do you remember those Saturday mornings? Yeah, I mean, they, we did have some very good... Um, it was, I remember fish and chips as well, Friday night. That yeah. was always essential, by the carp pond. Yeah. Um, but it's actually... It's Arguing interesting. over which Lib Dem minister we were going to try and phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You, ben, Bradshaw talk, ben, yeah. ben Bradshaw talking about his, um, his funny um, behaviour in the office. I interviewed Ben Bradshaw for the Independent Sunday and he wore his socks. He, he was in his stockinged feet, as my mum would say. <laughs> Um, he didn't have his shoes on, and I thought that was wonderful. He was just able to pad around his office in his in, in just his socks. They were red, I think. Well, there we are. Any, anything weird happened when you've done an interview, Matthew? Oh gosh, <laughs> I mean, too, I can't even begin to think about it. Um, but what I would say about hangovers is, um, I think what what you get when you're older is you, when you're out on a night, you you suddenly know the drink that's going to give you the hangover, and I think that's when you know when to stop. Whereas I think in the, in, in the past, in the independent days, we just kept drinking all night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Otherwise, we'd start thinking about the sales figures. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, that wasn't our department. <laughs> no, just put another big black and white photo of a pile of skulls on the front. That'll get it flying <laughs> off the news stands. Um, uh, right. <laughs> uh, lovely. So we're going to talk about vapes next and this problem of should we ban disposable vapes? Apparently, they're bursting into flames and setting fire to bin lorries. Well, someone's going to come in and dismantle one in the studio, which sounds very dangerous. Do either of you vape? No, I mean, I, if I were to vape, I think I'd just have a cigarette instead because uh, I, I do miss smoking. But um, I think the good thing about vapes is people who really can't give up smoking. It, it has been you know, useful for them just as something to do and, and stick in their mouth. But uh, th- to me, they seem much worse than cigarettes. They're, they're full of chemicals. We don't even know uh, how they're made or where they come from. And they're so easily easy to get hold of now compared to cigarettes which uh, uh it's very difficult to buy a cigarette these days uh so no yeah. i'm pretty anti anti-vapes um yeah no same same here i used to smoke <clears throat> and i think and i well, gave you've got up smoker's smoking. cough <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i used to smoke <laughs> <clears throat> I, I gave up smoking um before the kind of before vapes came around actually and i'm and I, and I just went cold turkey and it was really difficult 
and I've never wanted to go back, but I would rather smell a cigarette now in the street than, than a kind of caramel, whatever, disgusting yeah. um, smell mm. of a vape. I just think they're, they're awful. And I think it's really pernicious, actually, the way that they are. You know, the, the companies deny that they market to children, but of course they do. I mean, I'm aware of... <laughs> Even you know, though they're children. called, like, unicorn dust <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm aware, I'm aware of children in my, you know, my daughter's in year eight and there are kids in her year that, that are vaping. And that, you know, that didn't wow. happen with cigarettes in, when I was at school. I mean, maybe 15, 16, but... Yeah, and it's 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 really I just it, and I just can't st- yeah it's it's as Matthew says it's kind of what is in them, it's the chemicals, it's the sort of unknown, and obviously, um, if you are addicted to cigarettes and it is a way to give up, then that's fine. But I think to sort of to to market them as a sort of thing to do from the off is is pretty horrible. Well, the, the added <clears throat> problem is that even when they've been uh, vaped, uh, they get thrown away the disposable ones. And then uh, they've been bursting into flames uh, in recycling plants, even in the back of bin lorries, uh, because obviously they've got batteries and stuff in it. So how do you safely dispose of a vape? Scott Butler is the executive director of Material Focus, which runs the Recycle Your Electricals campaign and joins me here in the studio. Scott, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So explain what the problem is with vapes and why they're setting bin lorries on fire. Well, a vape is like an electrical. It's like any small electrical. Uh, it's containing some of the valuable resources, steel, plastic, uh, lithium and copper. And the single-use vapes, disposable vapes, are essentially mini batteries. And if that battery goes into the wrong place, it can get damaged. If it gets damaged, it can set on fire. And we did some research last year that revealed over 700 battery fires are caused... Wow. Uh, sorry, waste fires are caused by hidden batteries. So people should never, ever been a vape. That's the big message. Never been any portable electrical at, at all. But I suppose the problem is, because they're called disposable, the whole, it, the whole point is... They're marketed as being something you use and chuck away. Yeah, I mean, that's something that could be changed today. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a big part of this. It's a, it's a single-use plastic. It's a single-use yeah, yeah. lithium battery. It's a single-use um, you know, whatever it is. It's not good to cause it disposable because that yeah. disposable says throw it away. That way never existed. Um, yeah. And we need to really make sure that they are being recycled as a minimum. So you're, you've brought some in. Yes, so I have. So discussed, if you don't treat a vape properly, it might burst into flames. You're going to dispose of a disposable yes. vape by taking it apart in the studio. I'm doing so, like my parenting. This is what not to do. By this <laughs> so what example. have you got there? So it's a, it's a bright green one. Yeah, this is a bright green one. This one's called a Solo, but it's a bit like Elf Bar, right. Lost Mary's. You said what, some what absolutely crazy names. What flavour is supposed names. to be, that green Oh, this one is, oh, watermelon honeydew lemonade. Lovely. Lovely for the morning. <laughs> sort of a brunch-like flavour, I think. <laughs> Go on, then, start taking it apart. Okay. Uh, Matthew and Jane, you have to be on standby in case this studio explodes. You'll just have to finish so I'm gonna try we'll, and... we'll keep rolling. We'll yeah, keep just rolling. keep rolling. Yeah. I'm going to watch myself on camera so yeah, that perfect. I can sort of see it. But yeah. basically, here you have a, a, a shell. It's a steel casing, plastic tops, plastic bottoms. Yeah. It also comes with all this wonderful packaging paraphernalia, which is also a problem. Yeah, too. so there's, there's cardboard there, there's foil. Yeah, there's foil, there's little rubbery bits which are really troublesome for wildlife okay and what this is a bit of a curse when you start seeing these you see them literally everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, yeah yeah uh so here we've got it held up yeah and basically it's got a big pair of pliers big pair of pliers like pulling out the sort of the black what do you call that the teat uh, I don't know what the technical <laughs> name, name is. So there you've got the sort of plastic top. That's yeah, the, the... The bit you, you suck on. But now that you've called the teat, <laughs> you can know, know it is that. And then essentially here is... 
a sort of uh, absorbent material. That, that, like, that's like a, like a piece of white foam. Yeah. And that looks really not recyclable. Uh, that's like, the bit that will have to go to energy from waste. There's no recyclable yeah, solution yeah, yeah. for that. That looks horrible. And then... That's the sort of thing an animal's going to choke on. Yeah, exactly. You've got another bit of plastic here, which is at the top. Some clear sort of plastic cellophane in a Here's in a, tube. a sort of heating coil. So that coil is a bit that we're heats get, we're the... We're getting to the dangerous bit the Yeah, this yeah. is the dangerous bit. Yeah. Watch this. Tension, building, yeah. and there is the lithium battery. There's so, the battery. Um, if you can see that there. So is, is that like a normal AA one? No, that's... It, a, it's slightly smaller. Slightly smaller. It's a lithium-ion battery. Theoretically, that can be recharged. It's a rechargeable battery. Okay. We still haven't figured out why, but if virtually every vape has got this theoretical rechargeable battery in. So it's another waste as well. We're wasting the potential of this battery that could... You know, the materials in here is the stuff that's going into electric vehicles. Yeah. The copper in here is the stuff that we need for the electric vehicle So they've vehicle got rechargeable network. batteries in, even though they're designed not to be recharged? Yes. Yeah. So environmentally, that is a huge waste. This could arguably be the most environmentally damaging product that's ever made yeah, yeah, when yeah. you think about hundreds of millions of them yeah. distributed all across the country in random in random wrong places. Um, so, so if you were being diligent and responsible and you wanted to dispose of your disposable vape in the correct way, should you be taking it apart yourself at home? Definitely don't do what I just did. Right, good. <laughs> <laughs> so what should you do with them? Well, uh, for a while, it, people have essentially been avoided their responsibilities, yeah. the producers and the importers and the retailers. Recently, government has stepped up more uh, all the, basically where you buy it is where you should be able to recycle it. Okay. That's not always the case. So people should go in. We need sort of people pressure for this. But the major supermarkets, I've been in front of the trade associations for retailers. They all know that they should be taking back. They've pleaded a bit of ignorance, but that ignorance has definitely gone yeah. away because we've been talking to them now for over a year, asking them to really sort it out. The other challenge is that a lot of this stuff is imported from overseas and the people who are importing it do have clear legal financial responsibilities, but they've been avoiding it's hard it. To avoid it. And now it's trying to bring that in and creating vapes to special category. But this is sort of part of a fast tech movement as well. We're yeah, seeing yeah. ever cheaper technology, uh, which is more throwaway, more disposable, which seems anathema to what we want to, where to we do. Are with everything else. But it's important that people just recycle all of their electricals as a minimum. Uh, Jane, just finally, it- go on, Jane. Yeah. No, I was going to say, is, is the risk higher in the heat? In a uh, kind of, in a. Yeah, any, it... any circumstances, yes. Yeah. So you can have overheating of, of, of any battery, really. That's not unique. And I suppose the thing is because, yeah, you've got the weather, but also when you get big piles of rubbish, that starts generating heat, which yeah. makes it even more likely. Yeah, yeah. So you've got waste management companies who are trying to infrared. Check yeah. as the in the pile, yeah, and the pile yeah. builds up that way. And obviously, recently, across the last two, three weeks, well, yeah, it's been yeah, a lot yeah. hotter as well. So. Why else? Well, I'm glad neither of you vape, uh, Jade and uh, Matthew. You're very well behaved, uh, <laughs> albeit hungover in Matthew's case. Uh, lovely to speak to you both, but we'll get you back again. That's something about, but next time, we'll yes. just talk about um, uh, more about the I don't know the 2012 Olympics, the Lib Dems, <laughs> and, a, and a picture of a dolphin. Uh, Matthew Bell and Jane Merrick, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Matthew Bell and Jane Merrick from the Eye there. And you can read all the stories that we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. Coming up next, it's the latest exit interview with Ben Bradshaw. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. We've already said... Sir Ben Bradshaw is leaving us soon. Born in 1960, the son of an Anglican priest, he grew up in Norfolk, training as a journalist, reporting as the BBC's Berlin correspondent when the wall came down. I always ask myself, what am I going to do that's going to kind of beat what happened in Berlin? Swapping reporting the news to making it himself, he ran successfully to become the new Labour MP in Exeter in 1997, facing homophobia from his opponents. When I tell young people today about that campaign, they look at me in complete disbelief. He gives his verdict on all his political bosses, including Tony Blair. A delight to work for. Not always easy. Gordon Brown. Gordon rang me up once to apologise that he wasn't promoting me. I was in a piano bar in Mykonos. And Jeremy Corbyn. Brexit may well not have happened if, if it hadn't been for Jeremy Corbyn. And he reveals how he's among the Council of Elders, a group of Labour former ministers now advising the inexperienced team Starmer on diaries, staffing and how to keep sane. I would also insist on having an hour in the middle of the day to do yoga in my office. So, Ben Bradshaw, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question, why are you leaving us? I had had the huge privilege and good fortune to be in Berlin when the Berlin Wall came down and, and have that story land in my lap. And you know, when I came back and worked for the BBC in London... It was a great job. I was travelling all around the world, covering Clinton's election campaigns and other amazing stuff. Um, but I always asked myself, what am I going to do that's going to kind of beat what happened in Berlin? And then um, somebody actually suggested to me that so there was a vacancy in Exeter um, because of uh, uh, the sitting Labour candidate um, having to stand down. And uh, I put my name forward, never really expecting to be selected as a complete kind of novice didn't do any canvassing, um, and won in the final selection but in single figures. I can't remember, seven, eight, nine votes, and the rest is history. Uh, let's talk about that campaign. You were uh, up against your Tory opponent in 1997, Adrian Rogers, from the religious right. And you, you suffered a lot of homophobia, didn't you? I mean, it, 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 it sort of, on the one hand, 97 doesn't seem like that long ago, but in social terms, it really was. Yeah, and when I, when I tell young people today about that campaign, they look at me in complete disbelief. I mean, uh, I knew Adrian Rogers because I'd, 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 I'd often quoted him in the paper, and indeed he was often quoted in the national paper whenever the national press wanted a homophobic quote. They went to him. Uh, and I was, the f- I, was, um, I was not going to seek selection from the local Labour Party members on the basis of non-full disclosures. So in my selection pitch... I said at the end of my speech, and there's one more thing you need to know about me, you know, I'm gay, always have been, I'm not about to jump back in the closet, some of you know that, some of you may not, 
um, but I want you to select me on the basis of, of knowing that. And, and they did. And I was the first openly gay candidate to be selected and then elected in British political history. So Rogers, as soon as my selection happened, came out with some very, very fruity uh, quotes. Um, homosexuality is a disease-ridden, sterile occupation. Ben Bradshaw is homosexual, rides a bicycle, speaks German, works for the BBC, has everything about our country that is wrong, and if I was elected, the Exeter's children would be in danger. So that was the kind of tone wow. of the campaign. Um, but it meant that the campaign was, very, as you can imagine, very high profile, internationally as well as nationally. We had the world's media descending on, on poor old Exeter, and uh, it became a bit of a core cool celebra. Um, but it, was also, it also marked a real watershed in British politics, where I think some of the attitudes of the political parties, but also the media, had not caught up or kept up with where the public were. You know, we'd had Michael Cashman, who had gay characters on, on, on soaps. A lot of people had gay friends and relatives. And yet there was still quite a strong strand of homophobia. It was against the backdrop of Section 28, that piece of legislation, yeah. if you remember that the Conservatives passed in the middle of the moral panic about gay, pe gay pe children being made gay at school. You know, I mean, our understanding of human sexuality has changed and developed enormously yeah. in that time. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, that was part of my motivation, I have to say, to stand against Rogers, was I thought, you know, um, A, this guy needs to be beaten, but wouldn't it be kind of sweet if he was beaten by an openly gay man? And what was it like then arriving in the House of Commons of 1997? That sense of kind of optimism and euphoria that those of us who are old enough to remember was very, very real. And uh, it was very real and it lasted a very long time, you know, and, and I had a, a parliament on the back benches. I was very grateful for that. I think there's a lot to be said for, for, not, for not kind of rising up the ranks too quickly um, and, you know, winning your spurs first and doing your time and gaining experience. Well, uh, let me take you through then. So as part of the, uh, the exit interview, we'd like to reflect on your various bosses to see how they've, uh, how they've been. So let's start with, um, could you sum up Tony Blair in a word? I, the best uh, post-war prime minister that we've had, certainly since Attlee, uh, in my view. A delight to work for. Not always easy. Um, oh, tell me when it wasn't easy. That's well, I, he could be quite difficult to read. Um, uh, and sometimes he, he wasn't so good at the personal touches as, say, Gordon was. But I think in terms of being a prime minister, he was better and more rounded. It's quite clear to me that you know, Tony had amazing people around him. Yeah. And it says a lot about a leader that, that they appoint people who challenge them and tell them when they're wrong and give them a hard time. And I think that's, such an, that's so important in a leader. And then, you, like you said, you had a parliament on the back benches. Mm -hmm. And then after 2001, you, you joined the government. You were made a foreign office minister. You had not, only a couple of days after 9-11, you had to appear at the dispatch box. That must have been a big moment. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm not sure Tony had thought through the consequences of, of, uh, of appointing an openly gay um, MP to be a minister for what, in effect, was most of the Muslim world. It was in my, respons was in my area of responsibility. But yes, um, uh, and yeah, we had 9-11 uh, uh, quite soon after I was appointed. I had to dash back. I was actually away in, in Italy. I had to dash back um, from holiday, one of many interrupted or ruined <laughs> holidays I had as a minister. Uh, yeah, and then represent the government at the dispatch box. Um, so... 
it was, uh, you know, it was a kind of baptism of fire, really. You were then Robin Cook's yep. deputy as uh, Commons leader. Again, at quite a big time, particularly, you know, because that was the job he, was, he resigned as uh, yep. over Iraq. Did you yep. try to talk him out of that? No, uh, I didn't, and I don't think he would have been talkable out of it. Um, I mean, Robin was a great man to work for. He was a bit of a lone cat. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't share. He certainly didn't share his views uh, on that with me at the time. Um, he he kept he kept his his views very close to his chest. Um, I, ha- I had a lot of admiration for him for his integrity, and I you know I also fully supportive of of his position on things like PR and, and constitutional reform. Um, uh, I, dis- I disagreed with him on, on Iraq, um, but um, I thought, you know, for him he did the honourable thing and he did it uh, in great style. And I think it was a tragedy that we then lost him so young because uh, um, he would have been brilliant during the whole bre- all, all that Brexit stuff, wouldn't he? I mean, he was such a such a fantastic uh, um, uh, politician at the dispatch box. He would completely demolish uh, the Conservative spokespeople and. Um, I think the Labour Party, you know, really misses him and, and people like him, those great titans from Scotland that, that were so big in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. He was right about Iraq as well, though, wasn't he? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think in hindsight, you know, you can argue that the Iraq war was a mistake, but at the time, uh, the whole of the Western world accepted um, the, the view, as did the United Nations, that Saddam Hussein was rebuilding a weapons of mass destruction program in breach of United Nations uh, resolutions and the question really was no one disagreed with that the question was how you dealt with that and how uh, he'd already waged war in, on two of his enemies uh, killed a million of his own people um, and uh, I don't you know Robin Cook I didn't disagree with the premise that this was happening he just disagreed with um, the decision taken at that time to take military action so uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's one of the things I don't resile from uh, my vote. And if you look at if you look at who voted for it at the time, it was uh, it was overwhelmingly passed by MPs on all sides of the house. So I think uh, you know, if you look at what's happened in Syria, for example, uh, where we or the West didn't take any action, we Obama drew a red line and then backed off. Cameron had that disastrous vote in Parliament and uh, and then backed off and didn't go back to it the results in Syria have been far, far worse than what happened in Iraq, and they're still, we're still living with them. Still I mean, the migrant crisis yeah. and the awful situation in Syria itself. So, yeah, I mean, you can always make an argument about not taking military action, but I think you have to also be prepared to defend what happens when you don't. You had quite a lot of junior ministerial jobs before you got to the Cabinet. Foreign Office, DEFRA, Health... Because that was when you and I knew each other most, when I was at the West Morning News, and I think you were at DEFRA. Because normally you'd... That's the sort of job you'd have zip through in a year or well, two. One of, Tony, one of Tony's um, close advisors did, did kind of intimate to me that at, at, at one stage that, that I'd, I'd been forgotten about. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always a danger, I think, when you're in government, that you have ministers who are just getting on quietly and hopefully reasonably competently doing a job. Um, and uh, I've never been a very clubbable person. I'm not one of these people who would hang around in the tea rooms and, and kind of butter people up and... I wasn't the kind of Labour MP who'd come up through the NUS yeah. and, and Labour students and all of that kind of stuff. I didn't know 
Men, I didn't know any other MPs. Um, we, we, you know, Neil and I had no politicians at our wedding, you know, which is, is, is quite unusual. Well, actually, we did. We had a, New, Ze- we had a New Zealand politician, <laughs> but no British, no British one. Yeah, it actually makes um, you normal. It's the, uh, well, it's the others. Yeah, are, you can say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can, I can possibly uh, <laughs> uh, make a claim to normality. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't really have those yeah. networks. And I, 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 I didn't push, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, one heard some quite <laughs> interesting stories about other ministers and how they behaved around reshuffles and tantrums and things like that. I mean, I, I just kind of, when Gordon rang me up once uh, to apologise that he wasn't, to apologise that he wasn't promoting me, I was in a piano bar in Mykonos. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I had to find, first of all, I had to find a quiet corner, which was quite difficult in Mykonos, as you can imagine. Um, but I managed, managed to find a, a sort of a portico, portico of, a, of a church. I said, Gordon, for heaven's sake, please don't apologise for not promoting me. I'm loving, that was when I was at health. I said, I'm loving my job. And um, the Prime Minister's job is really difficult. And doing reshuffles is really difficult. And actually, Gordon was better at reshuffles than Tony. That's one of... That's See, it's really interesting. Yeah. You're, cause Tony wasn't very good at reshuffles. People will think that Tony Blair was the, the people guy, people mm. please, when mm. Gordon's the sort of cantankerous mm. bloke that people can get mm. on with. And actually, it sounds like Gordon was better with his colleagues. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think... Uh, I think um, um, I think I, I think no. I think Gordon was Gordon was slightly more socially awkward than Tony. I mean, Tony's I think got good emotional and yeah. social intelligence and social skills. I, you know, Gordon's slightly he's got that kind of slightly Scottish Presbyterian um, um, seriousness. But yeah. you know, the, the, you know the, the flip side of that is he's a serious man, which yeah. you know is a very important part of his strength and his qualities. But he was he was his reshuffles. As I experienced them, seemed to be a little bit more organised yeah, yeah. and and more strategic. Well, let's go back to my list then of uh, summing up your leaders and one your bosses in a single word. Gordon Brown in a word. Great man um, <laughs> would listen. Uh, and so a lot of words, but yeah, listen. Change his mind. A, a huge brain as well. And you were, I think it's fair to say, a Blairite. Yes. Were you surprised that it was Gordon Brown who ended up putting you in the cabinet rather than Tony? Uh, yes. Uh, well, no. I mean, I didn't have any expect. I didn't ha- expect that. Tony, yes. I didn't think that Tony should have done it, but I thought it was interesting and um, rather reassuring, actually, about Gordon's uh, determination to have a cabinet that was broadly based mm. uh, to give somebody like me a job. But I would also, I mean, although I was, you know, I was a, considered to be a, a Blairite, although I, these labels are not necessarily very helpful in always, always I don't think. I mean, they're, they're neat labels for, for commentators and journalists to use. But Gordon had some really tough times, and I was one of those ministers who would go out and fight for him, yeah. do those difficult media gigs. And I think that gets noticed and, 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 you know, for Gordon, very sensibly so, because, you know, if you're a prime minister, you need people who are prepared to go and uh, go out and bat for you in the, in the hard times and do those difficult interviews. So then, of course, then of course after 2010, Gordon Brown loses the election. Yeah. Labour Party goes into opposition for the first time in 13 years. Ed Miliband, in a word. <sighs> well, I'm, I, I back David. And, uh, <laughs> made that quite clear. Um, I think I've got a lot of time for Ed. I really like him. I think he's a great politician and I think he'll he'll have have a huge contribution to make in the next Labour government. I thought that David would have been the best leader and I think we made made a mistake in not. And of course the party members agreed with me um, as did uh, did the the affiliate organisations. It was the unions that swung it for Ed quite narrowly. And I... I, mean, I had an co- honest conversation with Ed, and I, I, I said I didn't approve of, of the way that he was 
distancing himself from Tony and Gordon's achievements and legacy, not just over the Iraq war, but in particular over the Iraq war. He hadn't been in Parliament when we had that difficult vote. And yeah, so, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't asked to serve in his uh, shadow on his front bench. And uh, I've been very happy on the back benches ever since, I have to say. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been quite a nice kind of rhythm to the second half of, of, of my political life. You, because um, obviously the, the next period on the on the backbenches was under 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 Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn in a word. Disaster. Oh, my goodness. That is actually a single word. Disaster for the Labour Party and a disaster for the country. You know, Brexit may well not have happened if if it hadn't been for Jeremy Corbyn. If we'd had a better, stronger leader, who could have articulated the case of staying in the European Union more more strongly to our working class base. Um, you know, we might have had a different result. Uh, but, you know, that was just part of the hideousness of those five years. And they were a lot worse than, than you know, people even, you know, knew at the time or, or say now, because a lot of us went through, um, you know, nightmarish times in our local parties trying to persuade decent, long-standing, moderate Labour Party members to stay in the party and not to leave because of the toxicity of some of the some of the meetings and some of the stuff that was uh, hurled at them. Uh, so let's move on to Keir Starmer then. Keir Starmer in a word. Strategic. Has he got the right strategy? Yeah. Yes, he's had the right strategy from the start and that's another reason why I threw myself so wholeheartedly into his campaign. He knew exactly what he had to do. I think his ten pledges were a mistake, by the way, and I told, I told him so and his people so at the time. He didn't need to make those ten pledges. Do you think um, he'd have won anyway? He would have won anyway, yeah. He, was, he would have won anyway. Um, and, um, uh, but anyway, I, but that's, that's by yeah. the by. You know, it was in a different time, a different context. But no, I've always felt... I mean, I ha, you know, I've never had a kind of conversation about strategy with Keir, yeah. but I've, I've watched him and observed him, and I've always felt he, he understood exactly what the Labour Party needed to do to regain people's trust, change the party, take the fight to the Tories, which obviously was difficult during the COVID thing because the public want want you to rally together and then come up with a with a compelling labor offer for mm. for the next election and he's been s- steadily and methodically working his way through all of those i was incredibly pleasantly surprised by how quickly and ruthlessly he established re-established control over the party and its mm. machine after it, it had been lost to the hard left i mean we never lost We'd never lost the Labour Party to the hard left before, even in the 80s. I mean, it was close in the 80s, but the hard left were in control. And that was quite, you know, that is quite, that was quite, well, very difficult. And, you know, within a year, that was over. And uh, so strategic competence, but also good political instincts and judgment. You know, he's not, he's not a Tony Blair in terms of charisma, um, but, you know, Goodness sake, after what we've had with Boris Johnson and, and, and stuff, I think the British public are crying out for a bit of quiet competence. Do you think he's going to win a majority? Yeah, I think he will win the majority. I think um, it doesn't feel the same as 97 in terms of the level of positive enthusiasm for, for Labour and, 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 and the enthusiasm he had then for Tony, for Tony Blair, but there's a very strong time for a change feeling out there. And that is usually the most significant indicator of, of, of what will happen in an election once you've neutralised your weaknesses, whether it's economic credibility or, or security, which I think he has very, very well. Is there anything that the Conservatives did that you thought was the right thing while they've been in government? Equal marriage? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was a bit 
they sort of rather overblew it because it wasn't that different from civil partnerships, but it was nice to get the icing on the cake. Um, and it was very nice that they made it retrospective as well. So it meant that people like me who'd had our civil partnerships under the Labour government were automatically converted yeah. to marriage and backdated. Do you think the hard bit was the civil partnerships? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, um, and the reason we didn't call it marriage was because it, that was how we got o- overcame the, the resistance in the House of Lords, including from uh, institutions like the Church of England, with, with whom I'm still having some battles on this on this front. But no, it was um, all credit to David, to David Cameron, and, and you know some of the other stuff they did on the environment under David Cameron. I think Theresa May. Uh, uh, you know, looking back now, it, one feels quite nostalgic about Theresa May. <laughs> Certainly on, on on equality issues, she was she was absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, let's uh, turn to some of the other um, exit interview questions. Do you think we equipped you properly to do your job? Did you have the right skills going into politics? No, no, absolutely no idea and no training whatsoever. You, you sink or swim, you learn it on the job. There's no ministerial induction or training, and nobody tells you how to do it. I mean, I read a, a book by a former Labour politician, How to Be a Minister. It wasn't particularly useful because it was quite out of date. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it's a shame, actually, because some, some of my colleagues who were perfectly competent and, you know, would have gone on to make great cabinet ministers crashed and burned because they didn't have any support and made silly mistakes and, or, you know, didn't take the House of Commons seriously or those kind of things. So I'm, there's a group of us in, in, in the PLP at the moment who are trying to help uh, the current batch of shadow ministers who've never been in government. You're greybeards now. You're a wise elder. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think... I think but I suppose but that's the trouble. It's been for such a long time. There aren't that many who've been around the cabinet table. That's right. And, you know, there are the Eagle sisters, me and one or two others, Margaret Beckett, of course, Harriet. And I think, you know, we, we, we could be very usefully utilised to help people and point out some of the pitfalls. When you so go on, then. If I was a young shadow cabinet minister now, what would you be telling me? Be prepared for... A lot of pressure, and you know, you may never have run anything. I'd never run anything or yeah. managed anybody apart from a very small parliamentary office in my life. And that I was suddenly found myself in charge of hundreds of civil servants who pack your diary from dawn till well after dusk every day, or would if they, or, or would if they could, if you let them. Um, you inherit a, a, a private office which may not work for you and uh, with individuals in it who may not work for you uh, and yet you have to kind of can't try manage that relationship because you want to get the most out of the civil service and it's very easy to become completely submerged uh, and sort of drowning in this kind of stuff but you have to be very strict and make sure you don't lose control of your diary mainly is what I would say. I would also insist on having... Um, an hour in the middle of the day uh, protected unless it was the Prime Minister on the phone to do yoga uh, in my office because I found... When you were a minister? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. because I found regular physical exercise was was one of the means of staying sane. I suppose the last sort of question we need to address in your exit interview is what what will you do next? Um, Well, nothing. Kind of observing, observing older relatives and friends who've retired. What seems to work best, for, or has worked best for them, is kind of doing nothing for a while, for you know a year or so, and seeing how that feels, and and then deciding then that you it's yeah. your ones are intolerably bored, uh, or actually this is rather nice. I'll carry on, and that's I think that's what we're going to do.
if Strictly picked up the phone and said, <laughs> Ben, you've got the reputation for being the best dancer in the Commons, you had to have an operation on your knee, didn't you? Was it disco knee? That was too much raving, yeah. <laughs> if Strictly picked up the phone, would you do it? I'd have, they'd have to be very, very persuasive because having, looking forward to the light at the end of the tunnel and removing myself from public life, which is, I have yeah. to say, part of the attraction of retiring, yeah. becoming a private person again, why would I want to go through with doing something like that? You could that? be the new Ed Balls. Yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> one, of the, Matt, one of the things, going back to what I was saying a bit earlier, that I'm really looking forward to about leaving politics is, is being a private citizen again and not having to put myself out there as it were, uh, in, in one form or another. I suppose I should have uh, congratulated at the beginning. You've just received a knighthood. Congratulations, but timing-wise, at the exact moment that Boris Johnson's devalued honours yeah. to the lowest possible. Well, that, that's one of the reasons I've, I've been feeling rather conflicted about it, although I will stress it was the King's List. Yes, of course. Thought. Yes, It's not a Boris Johnson, not Johnson knighthood. Thing. You're far uh, too <laughs> old and experienced to have got a gold yeah, from Boris no, Johnson. I had to think about it. I had to think about it, talked it, talk it over with Neil quite a bit. Because, you know, it is, a, it, is a, it is a throwback to what's well, not even a throwback, it's still going on to this sort of heterogeneative uh, patriarchal system whereby, you know, if you're a knight, your wife gets to be a lady. If you're a dame, your husband gets nothing. If you're a gay knight, your husband gets nothing. So, um, but, you know, it's, um, I didn't want to be churlish about it. And what, what's, what's made it easier is the response I've had, from, particularly from my constituents, who seem to be very pleased, which um, is nice. What would you like Neil to be called? What would, what would, be, what would be the right? Just Neil, and I, I'm, I'm still just, I'm just asking people to still, still call me Ben. He's not calling okay. you Sir Ben at home, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not calling him Lady Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right too, Ben Badshaw. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us for our exit interview. Absolute pleasure, Matt. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. I'm going to have another exit interview, same time next week. Uh, don't forget to post any nice reviews wherever you get your podcasts from and catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.